All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and dangerously touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I am, as usual, Sasha Wolf, virtually here with my friend and producer extraordinaire, Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hi. I always try and get you to giggle before <laughs> I've even said your name, but you were like, I got like a tiny giggle there. <laughs> not 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 the giggle I'm usually going oh, for. But. My apologies. <laughs> Are you in the constantly underrated and often maligned great state of New Jersey? I am, and it's very underrated. I'm here in my third floor office, which uh, for me has been quite a, uh, I guess, a little cave for me all summer long as I I do all these things, of course, remotely. And you have been uh, traveling around quite a bit this summer. I have. I had spent, you know, about four months of the heart of the pandemic in New York City. And then once things there that I felt responsible for were anyway, okay, and I could get out, I've been sort of bopping around. Most of the time I'm at my aunt and uncle's in Woodstock. But last week I was with a friend in Kingston, which is actually just a couple towns over. And that's where I recorded today's episode, which is a conversation with the great photographer, Jess Dugan. And we'll get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now I'm back at my aunt and uncle's in Woodstock and I've I've scoped out in in another (laughs) closet. So, I mean, I think, look, we, we joke about this, but of course, with this is the way a lot of people are recording things now. I mean, it's not like Jess was in a closet. Jess had to set up her closet to record her end of the conversation. If if this is at all unclear to people why we're doing this, it's it's the tone is just when you're in a sort of normal room, you get a sort of very echoey. It's just an unpleasant sound, and yeah. um, when you set up in a closet, it's just <laughs> it's obviously the acoustics are better because a the space is really tight, and b you put a lot of things around you that absorb yes. sort of sound from bouncing around. So I will say I'm contorted. This closet is so small that I'm I didn't I haven't you know I'm so limber. It turns out I who knew. <laughs> I'm, um, <laughs> This is the. This the, is a journey of self-discovery. <laughs> this is a journey of self-discovery because I am a pretzel. Well, I can do it. Speaking of it. self-discovery, yeah, Uh-oh. you uh, you actually revealed something pretty interesting on the show today. A conversation you had with your therapist. Oh God, yeah. So <laughs> this actually just makes the point to people, to our audience, that we. Do as little editing as possible. I mean, you do a great job of editing out sort of like coughs and very long pauses and... Right. I tighten it up. (laughs) You tighten it up. But we try really hard to leave all the content in. So I am now... I'm the victim of of that (laughs) ethos this week because... I tell this story to Jess about something my therapist said to me or a little conversation we had many, many years ago and... You know, that's just my comfort level with Jess. And obviously, I try and be really in the conversation with with my guests. And so, well, there you go. So now everyone will, will hear about my th- my therapy session. <laughs> yeah. And there were some other uh, striking moments in this episode, I thought. Really good conversation about how people might think they know you through your work, which reminds me 
of conversations I've heard with writers who are either you know semi biographical or or autobiographical. And, you know, there's always a a level of how much you reveal and and people might think you're revealing everything. But of course, you're always holding back or, or, you know, you're being pretty judicious about what you're sharing with people. But it was just interesting to to hear about that through a photographer and how people thought, uh, you know, think they know you through your work. I thought that was a good point. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed that part of the conversation for sure. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I think you have a a pretty serious critical discussion of some work that just published and the, you know, the sort of differences that you saw between that work, which was more documentary in style and and her other work. Yeah. In fact, I was thinking about that um, after the conversation that I don't want our listeners to think that I've turned into, you know, some... 60 minutes interrogator <laughs> because that's that's you know I, I certainly would never want to do anything I mean obviously I want to get a good interview with our guests but I'm I'm not here to you know make anyone feel bad or be you know overly critical but so just to be clear about this when you're listening and you get to that moment don't be distracted and think oh my god did Sasha just hurt Jess's feelings it's a conversation Jess and I have had many times Mm. um, privately. Jess and I are friends, and at various times in our relationship, she's asked me to give her my feedback on work. And so I saw this project in development. And what I talked to her about in our conversation, I've already talked to her about. So she, (laughs) uh, you know, so, so it's not coming from left field, number one. Number two, Jess is very amenable to... Uh, criticism. Mm. She's a real grown-up and very, very professional that way. You know, I'm a very good gauge at this point of what people can tolerate, what what artists can tolerate right. as far as what I can say to them and how I say it. So that's part of your business, right? It's yes, part, yeah. it's it's what I do. So you know, just a little inside baseball stuff here. When I'm talking to artists about work. I'm not, it's not my job to tell them that the project is not a good idea, even if I don't like the idea. I'm there to just talk to them about whether or not I believe it's well executed, whether the idea is well executed. But even within that, you know, I really know how much I can and cannot say. Some artists are extremely sensitive, some are less so, obviously. And I'm always trying to sort of find the sweet spot there because ultimately I am trying to be helpful. And in order to be helpful, I have to be honest. So, you know, I had a conversation with one of my artists who I represent last week. Oh, that's right. You don't represent Jess. I don't represent Jess. But I had a conversation with uh, an artist I do work with last, last week, and it was a first very long conversation it was a meeting, even though it was over the phone, of a new body of work. And I was quite tough on her. And in fact, I even joked with her about how occasionally talking to me can feel like going to the dentist. Like, you know, it's good for you, but you're uncomfortable and you're a little scared. Um, But, you know, I knew with this artist I was speaking with last week, I have a pretty good sense of what she's capable of hearing. And... And I was I was quite tough, but she was just the professional and the, the adult that she always is. And we were able, therefore, to have a very good discussion and not get hung up on, 
you know, Sasha's being mean to me, you know. Yeah. So, but Jess, I know Jess to really, you know, have that capacity as well. Well, I, you so know, anyway. I can believe that because, you know, li- in listening to the show, Jess's answers are, are pretty confident. Um, you know, she doesn't sort of beat around topics. She really... Uh, no. Yeah. She really knows who she is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think that Jess does so much public speaking and teaching. I mean, she'll get into this, but, you know, that she really has... You know, it's it's not that she's polished, It's but it's that she's had to really think about who she is and what she's trying to do and how her work is going to be received and what impact it has. And so she's, I don't know, that makes it sound like other people haven't, but there is definitely a a way in which Jess is, yeah. And so I agree that she's, she really is there with the answers to my questions and is able to, to really articulate things in a wonderful way. I really loved talking to her. I think it's a really nice conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. And and just a, a little more on that point, sometimes guests take a while to work around and circle around until they get to the answer. And that's just as interesting and just as useful, I think. Oh, yeah. No. So <laughs> yeah. There's no question. I mean, you know, sometimes and, you know, you see this in in the book version of the podcast. That's right. The the book photo work is that some people will answer certain questions very directly and other people, you know, not so much. And I think you can learn a lot about an artist by what they're sort of avoiding saying. Mm -hmm. Also, it's really interesting. Yeah. That's the old reading between the lines. Anyway. Fun as it is talking with you, as always, let's, uh, let's kick off the interview. So if, uh, if you don't mind, please take it away. Always my pleasure. And here's your conversation with Jess Dugan. Okay, Jess Dugan, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, and thank you so much for being my guest. I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording just now about where you are, and you can tell people where you are, but where you are is very rainy and dreary, and where I am is very rainy and dreary. So these are good days for you and I to be in tucked away in our recording closets talking to each other, I think. But tell people where you are. Indeed. Thanks for having me on, Sasha. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I am in a closet in my home in St. Louis, Missouri. And as you mentioned, it's rainy and quiet outside, which I thought was particularly nice for recording this podcast today. Yeah, it's good when less people are walking by your window doing whatever they do. Yeah. And we have large amounts of lawnmowers and leaf blowers. And it seems like every time I try to record an audio or video, there are a million things happening. So I was grateful that today seems pretty quiet. You're living the suburban dream, it sounds like. (laughs) Well, I don't know about suburban. So yeah, we're in the city. We're right in the city in St. Louis, which is its own conversation for a different podcast, perhaps. But um, there are lawnmowers and leaf blowers for sure. (laughs) I'm I'm not in Manhattan. Right. In Manhattan, if like someone walked by my my building on 88th Street with a lawnmower, I'd be um, distressed. I would find it distressing. <laughs> Although, maybe not. I would just be like, it's just a, another New York City day. Right. So <laughs> it is really wonderful to be talking with you. And it's I've wanted to um, do this with you for many weeks now. And so we've we've worked it out. You and I have known each other for, uh, I'm not really sure how long now, but we sort of became fast friends. And have wound up doing some workshop teaching together, which I just 
love doing with you. So, but I've never, um, yeah, I mean, I've, we've talked about your work a lot, I guess, and we've, we've sort of gotten into some stuff, but for sure, when I was thinking about talking to you, a lot of questions came up in my mind and I was like, I really don't know the answer to. So I'm mm-hmm. excited to, um, to get into it. But before I, I drill down, just tell people a little bit about, you know, your trajectory and how you wound up where you are right now career-wise, and you can Mm -hmm. give people a little bit of context about where you are now. Sure. So I'm going to start at the beginning, but I'll I'll go in a slightly expedited version. But I discovered photography in a formal way when I was 16. I took a class in high school, my last year of high school, and I was immediately hooked. Um, I immediately wanted to make portraits. I hit the ground running doing work that's actually very similar to to what I'm doing today. So that's been an interesting through line. And I went to the Massachusetts College of Art and Design to get my BFA in photography and worked with some really fantastic artists there. And that was my foundation to picture making. So I I learned about picture making. I learned about large format photography. I learned about working in serial projects. And that was my beginning. So after I graduated, I worked at a museum. I somewhat accidentally fell into museum work, which has been a parallel part of my career that that not everyone knows about. But I worked at a museum and I spent four years figuring out how to be an artist outside of college. It was really important to me to prove to myself that I could set up a practice and keep making work while supporting myself and while not in school. And so during this time, I had a day job. I also went to school at night to get a museum studies degree. But all along, I knew I was going to go back to get my MFA in photography. So after being out for you, I'm sorry. Oh, so sorry. So I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at that time. Got it. And yeah, I grew up in Arkansas, but I I moved to Cambridge right before high school. So my, my formative years were in Cambridge and Boston. And so I was living in Cambridge, working at a museum full time. And I knew I wanted to go back to grad school. That was always my plan. And I researched schools throughout the country. And I ultimately chose Columbia College Chicago, both because... I really wanted to work with Dawood Bay, who was my primary mentor and, and was really the main draw for me to go there. And I also wanted to work at the Museum of Contemporary Photography because my income at that point was in the museum world and I didn't know what I was going to do after grad school. So I wanted to keep that resume going. So anyway, I spent three years at Columbia. I graduated in 2014. And at that point, I had met my partner, Vanessa, and she went on the academic job market and we ended up in St. Louis, which in some ways was very random for me. It's, it's not a choice I would have made. But what happened is because St. Louis is very affordable, I was able to work as a full-time artist. So I've been self-employed for the past six years and I focus on making work, um, but I also do things like teach workshops. As you know, I have done a lot of artist talks and campus visits. I do some assignment work. So I feel really grateful that for the past six years since leaving graduate school, I've been able to really be a full-time artist and yeah, and maybe I'll pause there, but you know, career-wise, I could also talk about my relationship with galleries and museums, which has been a pretty important part of my career. But maybe I'll pause that for a later question. Did you feel like, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine the answer to this isn't going to be yes, but <laughs> um, I, I assume that you have felt as an artist when you're dealing with museum curators, 
like you're in a pretty good position given your background in working in museums? Because I know a lot of artists, and I know you know this, but yeah, you know, a lot of artists have no idea, you know, how museum acquisitions come about, and right, you know, what's expected of them as far as how much they're they should be charging the museum, should they be donating? And all, but anyway, you must have felt like you had a sort of leg up there, right? Definitely, and that's why I mentioned it because again, it's not. That part of my work experience isn't something I advertise heavily on my website because it's not as, as relevant to what I'm trying to do today. But I do think working in the museum world was a huge asset when I started working more as an artist. And even then, honestly, I, I finished undergrad at 20. And even then, I was 100% sure that I wanted to be an artist. And I was just gathering all the information I needed. And, and so I learned a lot working at museums. And I also had a commercial gallery that I worked with starting around that same time. So I was really gathering all the information I needed to build this career. But my experience working in museums has definitely been a huge asset for me as an artist because I understand the back end. And, you know, we can talk about this more later if it's of interest. But, you know, my my primary home for my work has always been museums and, and institutional collections. And so that's something I've pursued fairly assertively and aggressively as opposed to more of a, a private collection market. And I know the two are related, but... Um, yeah, but why don't you explain that? Because I know why that is, but maybe you, that's worth going into, I think. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I guess this is going back to the, the root of my work in some ways, but... One of the things that I've always been really passionate about is representation and the way that manifests in my work is thinking about representations of queerness and queer people. And in my more recent work, I'm thinking a lot about queer family. And, you know, when I was a younger person, I didn't see a lot of images of people who looked like me in the culture around me. And that's changed a lot in, you know, what would that be 18 or so years since, since I was 16, but it, you know, it's changed a lot since then. But I first discovered those images in a fine art context in photography books and museums. And that was really validating and important to me. And so part of my mission as an artist has always been to share my own story and also make work within the broader LGBTQ community to create these representations. And because that's important to me, I really want them to be included in collections where they'll be seen. I want my work to be, um, you know, exhibited in exhibitions where it can be in dialogue with other artists. And I've always just felt really strongly that my my goal as an artist is to have my work collected and shown and studied and put to use as opposed to maybe a more financial goal, which I actually don't know that many artists who really go into it to make money. But, you know, certainly the museum route is not is not uh, the most, you know, financially lucrative. So for me, the goal has always been something different. Are you an artist or are you an activist? That's a good question. So I definitely identify as an artist. And I, you know, I also sometimes have have called myself a photographer. I think right now on my Instagram profile, it says artist slash photographer. And so those labels are both words that I use. Well, you know, I'm just laughing because, you know, if if you've listened to the other episodes of, of the podcast, I keep asking people if they can, you know, if they use the term artist to describe themselves. But 
I was going to spare you of that, but I love that you sort of got that in. <laughs> no, anyway, it's go okay. on. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I find when I tell people I'm a photographer, they immediately ask if I shoot weddings. And so, right, I, of course. I, you know, if, <laughs> exactly. I, if I tell them I'm an artist, it's it's they understand a little bit right. more. And, <laughs> and some of yes. my work is a little bit out, outside of pure photography, although I'm, I'm definitely a capital P photographer. So back to the artist and activist question. I view myself as both. You know, when I was younger, I did a lot more activism with nonprofit groups. I did a lot of street activism. I was involved in a a different capacity as an activist. And as I found art and photography, that part of my life quieted a little bit. And I found that I could channel that energy into my work. So I do feel that my work has an activist element, um, some more than others, which we can talk about. uh, But, you know, certain projects definitely are more overtly activist than others. But I think even my more subjective, highly personal work has a, a, a little bit of an element of activism in wanting to educate and wanting to share stories that aren't always shared. So I identify as both an artist and an activist but I'm also aware that activism has many different channels and avenues and making art that has an activist element is different than something like working as a lawyer for the ACLU, for example. So I'm always careful not to inflate what I do, but I, I do think it has a pretty significant activist element, sometimes in the programming and lectures that I'm able to do around the work, even more so than just the work itself. But wouldn't you say that all your work has, I mean, there's a way in which I think all of your work is teaching. Yeah. You know, that's that, yeah, that that there's a teaching element in in all of it. And so to me that, that it's very active and activist. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think some of it is more, some of that teaching is more by me simply sharing my story and very publicly being who I am. And some of it is more overt um, in projects like To Survive on the Shore, which we can talk about in more in more detail. But but yeah, I, I absolutely think there's a teaching element in all of it. You know, it, it's one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about this conversation with you a few days ago was that it's like I'm I think of myself as a very private person. And mm-hmm. years ago, I was in therapy and my therapist used to tease me that I, I considered when neighbors got in the elevator, if I was in the elevator on my way up or down from my apartment and neighbors got in and said, hey, Sasha, um, how are you? That I considered that an invasive question. So um, <laughs> yeah. there is some truth to that. Like, I actually, I do remember pushing back and saying to her, well, it depends how you ask it. Like mm-hmm. if you say, how you doing? Then I know the person doesn't really expect me to answer. But if you say, how are you? Then I feel like I actually have to answer. Okay, so I'm aware that that sounds nutty. But that was sort of like that's my level of, you know, sometimes, in fact, a lot of times I just sort of have this sort of very Mm self-protective way of being in the world, even though I think I'm also very outgoing and social and very warm. But there's there's those things to hold back. And it's it's. I say all that because I actually think of you that way. Like one of the things that I love about you and one of the reasons I feel like you and I just sort of really hit it off when we we first met is we're both sort of, we don't just sort of let it all hang out, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're both sort of restrained that way. Mm-hmm. And yet 
in your work, it's all out there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're not your typical sort of intimate photographer or journalistic photographer, diaristic photographer. I could keep going with these terms, um, you know, who really lives very publicly. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm thinking of someone like Eleanor, who I talked to a few weeks ago on the podcast. And Eleanor is, you know, is really forthcoming with who she is in real life, also mm -hmm. not just in her pictures. But mm -hmm. you're, you're not. And I mean, do you agree with my sort of assessment of your personality? And, and if you do, how do you reconcile <laughs> being the way you are with, with then living your life? And maybe when you answer that, you could talk a little bit about your first, you know, big project, Every Breath We Drew, which became a book and has just traveled all over. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I actually find your assessment of my personality really refreshing because I actually think a lot of people assume that I share everything and they assume that they know me at a level that they don't. And so as my career has become more public, that has become kind of a wider gap to navigate, if that makes sense. So, yep. you know, my work has always been very personal. It's always come from a personal place. I've always photographed myself. I've always made portraits that are about my own desires and interests. And I've always used my work to understand myself and understand the world and also to connect with people in a really intimate way that I, I don't always feel like I can do outside of the the photographic space. And so my work has always been very personal, but it's also, as I'm sure you know, it's also mediated. So I make a lot of things that never get seen. And there's often a delay in when I make something versus when I put it out into the world. And so even though people perceive my work as highly personal, there's a whole other layer that's truly private or truly personal. And it's very considered when I make something public. So it's kind of like there's this dichotomy where I'm interested in being incredibly personal and intimate, but it's also not, as you say, just everything out there all the time. It's, it's kind of, yeah, it's mediated in terms of how I put it out. And I will get back to every breath we drew, but one thing your question made me think of was a video piece I made a couple of years ago that was about my estrangement from my father and it was all comprised of photographs from my personal collection and that was for me as a maker one of the most difficult and personal pieces I've ever made and that felt really scary to put out into the world because it felt really personal not this kind of you know self-approved personal and um and putting that out and having it be well received was really healing and really important, but it was certainly something hard to make. So going back to Every Breath We Drew, Every Breath We Drew is a long-term series. It's, it's mostly comprised of portraits, but there are a few still life images as well that is really looking at this intersection of identity and connection with other people. So it's looking at desire, it's looking at sexuality, it's looking at gender. You know, there are self-portraits in the work that are really meant to locate me as part of this conversation I'm having. But also in some ways, I think of the whole project as a larger self-portrait because the way I choose subjects is so subjective. They're people that I'm drawn to. They're people that I'm interested in. In some cases, they're people who have a quality I either see in myself or want to see in myself. It tends to center around a 
gentle version of masculinity, um, which I feel that I also embody. And that's something that I've had to really intentionally carve out for myself in the world. For listeners who don't know me, I'm, I'm female, but I'm very masculine presenting. I identify as non-binary, which is just the, the word of, of this year that's means the same thing that a, a bunch of other words previously have meant. But so every breath we drew is really reflective of me and who I am. So it, it does come from, from this very personal place. And it's something that I'm really working on intensely right now. As you mentioned, I started it in 2011 and put out a book in 2015, but I've been working on it rather intensely since then. And I have a lot of new work and I'm, I'm really excited about where it's going right now. I feel like I'm really in a groove with that work and I'm definitely working towards another book. And I have a couple of shows of that on the horizon. So that's one thing I'm really working on intensely right now. And, and, and one thing is maybe thinking about how the work is received in the public, you know, the, the work is, it, it centers around queerness and it is reflective of my identity, but it's not only about LGBT people. It's not only about sexuality. So I'm really trying to make work that's about more fundamental human experiences that just happens to be seen through my personal lens, which happens to be queer. So I've had frustration over the course of my career about how people sometimes speak about that body of work in a very reductive way. And I'm always trying to let it be really complex and to let the work go where it's going to go and not not worry about these external categories or factors, if that makes sense. Do you think that it becomes reductive because uh, coming back around to where we started, in a way, it's like where we are in the world right now, when you make work that's primarily about uh, non-binary, queer, trans people, mm -hmm. that's the thing that people are going to focus on. I mean, it's it's like we're not yet at the point when, you know, I don't know if you saw the beautiful film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but the the French movie that came out last year, but it's this beautiful film. It's about a lot of things, but it there is a love story between two women in the film. And, and so mm -hmm. that's often the first way it's described. Right. I mean, how do we how do we get around that? Is there a way of getting around that right now in the world we live in? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question. And I, I think that this is something I've always pushed up against with my work because it is queer and it's coming from a queer place. But I think sometimes when people are trying to take that work and put it to use in a context, whether that's in a show or in a magazine or, you know, write about it in some way, it's easier for them to categorize it. And that is sometimes not always in service of the work. But I don't know, I guess I keep coming back to just trying to stay really true to making the work that I need to make and letting the work become what it will be. And then going through the process of positioning it for the world separately and not not thinking about that when I'm making the photographs. And I hope remembering that the way the work is looked at now is not the way the work will be looked at in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 50 right. years. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess another piece for me is with with all of my work, I tend to work on 
projects for a really long time. And I almost hesitate to call them projects because I, I just am constantly working. And the Well, I want to ask you are, about that. I'm, I'm just going to jump in okay. and frame this a little bit for our audience. <laughs> sure. I mean, okay. obviously, we're expecting people. We always sort of joke about how, you know, of course, it's a it's a podcast on visual art that's an audio. So right. problem number one. But we yeah. expect people to be doing a lot of Googling. But having said that, still try and be somewhat helpful here. So you have four main bodies of work that are public. Every Breath We Drew, Family Pictures, Self-Portrait with Mom, and To Survive on the Shores. To Survive mm-hmm. on the Shore is different, is separate in meth- methodology. Mm-hmm. And the right. you know outcome is very different. And so we, we'll, we'll get to that. But before we get to that, let's, let's talk about the fact that these are three projects that are just ongoing. I mean, n- none of them have a, you know, I mean, obviously, Portraits with Mom may end when if something happens to mom, mom passes away, it would be hard to, you know, and a lot of people have that does bring an end to, mm-hmm. you know, these family studies, photographic studies. But really, these are these are three bodies of work that could just go on and on. Is that how you feel about them? Or is there is something you want to wrap up or... Yeah, so I view it as in my in my brain, I view it as three projects because I lump the self-portrait with mom in with my ongoing family work, but I have separated it because they are different aspects of that work. So of the three, every breath we drew, I view as a potentially lifelong project. That's my ongoing, you know, highly subjective, deeply felt portrait work that I feel expresses who I am and where I'm at in my life and what I'm thinking about. And so that's definitely long term. The work with my family, I also view as ongoing. And that includes my mom. I have been photographing my partner, Vanessa, since 2012. And then in 2018, we had a daughter, which many people may not know because she's completely devoid of uh, or or my social media is completely absent of her. So so now I've been photographing her and so the family work is very much ongoing and and with that project in particular I've actually identified the passage of time as a really core element of that work and so I'm imagining I'll make a book of that work in, you know, 10, 15 years maybe or whenever it feels right, but it it in no way feels like I'm anywhere near wrapping that up. I've never exhibited that work. I'm I'm actually exhibiting a small selection at the National Portrait Gallery 2 years from now and that's going to be the first time that work's ever been in a physical space, but it feels like a really core part of my my work right now. And so then the third is obviously to survive on the shore, and that project was very different for me in that it had very clear parameters for people who might be unfamiliar with it. It was a, a project comprised of portraits and interviews with people who are transgender and gender expansive and over the age of 50. And that was made in collaboration with my partner, who's a social worker and researcher. And for that, we very clearly identified this goal. It had much more of a documentary approach. And we set out to make a project and we spent five years making that project. And at some point it really felt done. And And we wrapped it up, we published a book, we put a show out into the world. And um, for me, that's very much completed. I'm, I'm moved on. And while I'll still show the work and talk about the work, of course, I'm 
I'm in no way making work for that project. So right now I feel like I have the two main pillars of my practice, which is Every Breath We Drew and the family work and the self-portrait work. It's funny because, first of all, I, I think... You know, I was going to ask you about to survive on the shore if you felt it was sort of less aestheticized and artistic than your other work. But I, I actually also, you know, just using the word documentary, I mean, it's clear that I don't even think I need to a ask that. I mean, am I wrong? The answer is yes. And it, it's just not nearly as deeply felt. I mean, I know that maybe feels bad hearing me say that. But I mean, the way you talk about your other projects versus to survive. And mm -hmm. I also know this work really well. And you and I, we've talked about it. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. you know, it's just so obvious to me, like, you know, what you feel really passionately about, because your pictures are stronger artistically, I think. Mm -hmm. And sorry, that might be obnoxious no, 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 to say on a podcast. <laughs> but um, I that, you know, that's my opinion. And also, it's just been really interesting. I just want to point something out because you may not realize this, but this is actually a therapy session. Um, <laughs> you when you talk about every breath, you use the word, I, I don't know if you said personal or whatever, but you describe it as being really, really personal to you. You, you didn't even use those terms when you just talked about the family pictures. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting how what you regard as the most personal of your work. Right. It's not the work that has you. I mean, you're obviously completely in it. It's all about you, but it's mm -hmm. not the most pictures of you. It's right. not the work with the most pictures of you, literally. And it's certainly not to survive, which was First of all, just by nature of a collaboration, even with your partner, makes it very hard for something to be as personal, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest I'm distinction... I'm lecturing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest distinction for me is that the work feels like it comes from a really different place. And I think you're right that every breath we drew is my core soul work. Like that is who I am. That is where I ask questions and pursue things that I'm needing to ask and pursue. That's how I learn about myself. That's how I connect with other people. I mean, every breath we drew feels like my most deeply felt core work that's going to be ongoing for a long time. And I think the family pictures also feel very personal, but there is a, even, even a hair more of a documentary element in that I am trying to capture something over a period of time. So that's you know, that's a slightly different goal. Whereas, you know, sometimes with people in Every Breath We Drew, I do photograph the same people over time, but it's more that I'm in pursuit of really emotionally resonant images and not so much that I'm trying to document them. So they have a different goal. But, you know, I, I loved working on To Survive on the Shore. I felt like it was an important project and there were aspects of making it that I really loved. You know, I was traveling a lot throughout the United States for uh, shows and giving talks about my work. And this project allowed me to make work on the road. So there was a very tangible aspect of making it. But I also really loved how it allowed me to connect with the people that it did. And, and I feel proud of it. And I feel that, that it has made a big impact and that it was important. But I also feel you know, what you're saying about it being a different kind of work is really true. It's 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 not coming from my soul in the same way. You know, that having been said, it's been really interesting 
to see the reception to that project because it has been quite strong and it's been really good for my career. You know, it's led to a large amount of acquisitions and exhibitions and I'm really proud of the book. So there's been this moment where I'm thinking now about you know, what comes next and how can I make sure that the work that I really feel is my identity as an artist is seen at that same level and is acquired in the same way. And certainly Every Breath We Drew has been, but I'm I'm still kind of processing this this reception and media moment that we had for To Survive on the Shore and thinking about going forward. So you know, right now I'm I'm working toward a show next fall at the St. Louis Art Museum, and it's going to be all new work from every breath we drew, and I'm able to produce anything I want. And so, I mean, I say anything I want. There's, it's you know, it's going to be somewhere in the 20 to 25 uh, photographs range, but I basically get to make whatever edit and whatever show I want. And so I'm I'm really excited about that opportunity, and and I've really jumped. 100% back into photographing for every breath we drew. And it's nice to have a show. You know, I mentioned the show because it's nice to have a show on the horizon as this this tangible thing to work towards, even though as an artist, I'm just working constantly, even if I don't have a show on the horizon. But but it's, it's sort of a helpful uh, marker. I have so many things just circling around my brain. I, I'm still sort of interested in playing the part of the psychiatrist because I'm really interested in how you've made it really clear in this conversation that every breath is, it's almost as if it's more, it's the most autobiographical, even above family. Because again, you just talked about family as something you document. Mm -hmm. And you talked earlier about how you look for things, you look for parts of yourself in a lot of the people you photograph for every breath. So mm-hmm. it's just really interesting. And the reason I'm sort of hammering this home is actually not to analyze you, but for our audience, because I think mm-hmm. it's actually really fascinating that you found this really beautiful way of really searching for who you are, mm-hmm. not in the most obvious place, which is your own family. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that happens there too. But if I'm just going by the words you've used, the place where it seems to happen in the deepest and most profound way is outside of yourself. And I, anyway, just think that that's a really beautiful. I just want to just sort of highlight it because it's very moving to me. But, Thanks. Yeah. So let me ask you, what are, is there? I have a, a couple of sort of big questions, I guess. One is, is it do you worry at all about being sort of pigeonholed because of the reductive nature of you know, the way your work is received, what we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, I mean, for someone who is is as sensitive as you are and interested in other people and sort of, uh, I mean, you know, you're a really good person, Jess. You know, that's the Jess I know. Um, Thanks, Sasha. I, I, you know, I wonder if, if, is this, does it feel like, you know, you're, you're where you want to be in the contribution you you make to the world? Mm. Yeah, those are good questions. So for the pigeonhole question, that's definitely something I think about within the context of the museum space. For example, I really want my work to be treated as work of an artist and not just something that has this element of identity or queerness. And so that's something I'm constantly thinking about. How can I position the work? How can I make certain choices on my end so that it will be received as complicated as I want it to be received and not be 
written about one of those choices i'm jumping again sorry i know i know that i'm interrupting and i apologize but i just think it might be (laughs) helpful for the audience um yeah would one of those choices be not using as much text for instance yeah it could be so for every breath we drew there's actually not a huge text component there there was a lot for to survive on the shore but but for every breath we drew it's usually more of a introduction or a statement but i actually think that question is important because I think the way That's that I, I asked it. write about the way <laughs> <yeah. laughs> I, I think the way that I write about the work is actually one of the ways that I can control how it's received and you know, over the years, I've adjusted how I've written about it. And I actually just wrote a, a new grant application for this year's Guggenheim. And I feel like I finally just wrote about the work as it is without trying to put it in a certain box or talk about it in a, in a frame of identity. And so I have no idea how that will be received. But I felt like I finally just said what the work was about. And that was really liberating. You know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to work with Dawood. And he and I have had a lot of conversations over the years about making work as part of a marginalized community, but still wanting to be seen as an artist and not you know, trying to put down this responsibility that's placed upon you all the time by outside institutions to make a certain kind of work or speak for a certain group or fill a certain box. And so, you know, that's something I've been thinking about and and, and definitely something I have tried to address through the writing. And then, you know, yeah, I, I definitely don't want to be pigeonholed. I've I've recently been doing a little bit of editorial work and the first few assignments I got were all portraits of trans people. And that's great. And I, I'm skilled at that. And I can do that. And I was happy for the work. But I, I just got two assignments recently that were just portraits. And I found it really, <laughs> really exciting and <laughs> liberating. And it's like, oh, thank God, like someone's hiring me to just photograph a writer or photograph, you know, that that feels like a real milestone, Jess. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it feels good. And so so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think about that. I feel like my real core practice is portraiture and that's what I'm good at and it has overlapped with queerness and identity at various points but it's really nice to be treated as an artist and and treated as someone who's really skilled at making portraits and and not be put into a certain box and so now I so, forgot your second question what was no, the second no, it's part okay of it's all good all, all good I'm gonna actually because I really try you know with this podcast to sort of just provide you know, useful pieces of wisdom and information for whoever's listening, you know, it's meant to sort of have the same vibe in a lot of ways as the book of the same name. So mm-hmm. I want to, with that in mind, I want to just double back to something you said in the very beginning that we didn't pick up on, but I, I think people will be interested in which is that you're very focused on museum acquisitions. And if I could just tease that out a bit, my guess is that that's because portraiture is extremely hard to sell to individual Mm -hmm. clients. So Mm -hmm. you can pick this up, but I will just say this from my own experience as an art dealer for the past 20 years that you know, big collectors are different. You know, people who buy like 10 or 20 prints by an artist and it goes into their flat files, those are the type of collectors who are going to most likely leave their collection to a museum. Mm-hmm. But the majority of sales go to sort of just casual collectors and most of that work is going to go up on the wall. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and when they do that, that's a type of decorating. Right. It's not... 
decorating is not a dirty word. And I can speak for myself that I probably sell one straight up portrait, not talking about Moose or street photography, although that too, but, but a real straight up portrait like the type you make. I would probably I probably sell one for every 10 landscapes, still lives, et cetera, non-portrait. Mm-hmm. So often portrait photographers do focus more on institutional sales because they're not decorating. But most people do not want to put a picture of someone they don't know above their couch in the living room. Right. Yeah. Especially with a highly confrontational gaze and, you know, potentially lots of queer content. <laughs> um, right. I mean... I think that's definitely true. I think that's one reason I've always sought out museum collections. And, you know, I mentioned I started working with a commercial gallery when I was young. I was 21. And I have sold some portraits to private collectors over the years. And and I certainly have my work in some private collections now. But as you mentioned, they're more of the the serious collector that you talk about whose work is probably going to go to a museum. But I think for me... I didn't really start selling much work until my career had hit a level where it was of interest to museums. And that's just been a much better fit. And and I would say is probably 85 or 90 percent of the work that I sell goes to museum collections. And that's just a real, you know, that is very common in your space. So I just want to say that mm-hmm. out to anyone who's listening, who's doing portrait work, once again, proving the point that no one should go into the world of, you know, should should plan on um, an artistic life, life of an artist as a way of making money. It is no one's get rich quick scheme. Right. And you didn't ask me this directly, but, you know, I definitely think one myth that I encounter out there is that if you're successful as an artist, that you must be making a lot of money. And I know you know that's not true. And and by success, I mean, if you're exhibiting, if you have books published, right. if you're giving lectures, that it means you must be making a lot of money. And I think just to hit your point home, that's not always the case. And, you know, for me, I've spent, let's see, 15 years now, maybe 14 years now, just trying to support myself to keep making my work. And so you know, certainly I'm in a better place now than I was when I started, but it's it's an ongoing puzzle to try to figure out how to make a living and then make work that is sometimes not very easy to sell. Yeah, I would say that a lot of, you know, most of the work that's that's sort of institutional work, that's museum work, that's not decorative, the artist is not making a living mm-hmm. selling work. There, you right. know, so many of the most famous artists, photographers working today teach. Mm-hmm. Do, yeah. do some of them teach because they love teaching, and but they don't really have to? Yeah, but most are teaching because <laughs> they have to. Right. So, and it's a beautiful thing to do. It's a beautiful profession, but it's really, oh, it's so striking to me in my journeys as a, well, doing all the things that I do for a living, how unbelievably wrong young people are about the realities of, of making money in our business, but we won't, we right. won't sort of go that's, too far. That's another that. podcast um, too. <laughs> yeah, that's another podcast. But um, I wanted to end with the, I asked this a little bit earlier and we, we went on some tangents, but has it been thus far a really satisfying journey for you? Do you feel good about where you are and what you're doing with your life? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And I think the answer is certainly yes. 
you know, there's also a, a longer answer. But, you know, I feel really lucky that what I do is something that I'm really passionate about and that I'm really driven to do and that really fuels me in a way, you know, especially at this point in my life and career where, you know, my peers are many of them in certain jobs or certain careers. I sort of look around and see people and just realize I'm incredibly fortunate to be doing something that I love. And that certainly comes with pros and cons, but it is very satisfying for me. And I, I feel, um, yeah, it, I mean, making art is really essential for me. And I actually don't know what I would do if I couldn't do it. It's actually never really been an option for me to do anything else. I think I would be miserable if I wasn't able to to make art and, and process my life and my world through photography. But it's very tied with just who I am and how I live and how I process what's happening and what's important. So um, it, it is very, back to the original question, it's very satisfying. And, and, I, and I also think that, you know, in so many ways, I'm, I'm really happy with how my career has gone. You know, I sometimes imagine my 19-year-old self when I was a student and think about how that self would see my 34-year-old self today. And I realize that I've 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 done everything I wanted to do and hope to do, which doesn't mean I'm, I don't have so much more still to do, but this is exactly where I hope to be. And, and I'm here and I feel really grateful for that. And, and, you know, I'm also, you know, not to sound too self-congratulatory, but I also have worked really, really, really hard to be at this place and just feel really grateful that, that all that work has, has come to something that I, that I wanted it to come to. So, so yes, I feel very satisfied. I, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of tweaked what my time looks like and what my income looks like and, and what my schedule looks like repeatedly over the past 15 years, but it's always been in pursuit of being an artist. And, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing that. And that's just incredibly uh, validating and meaningful and really, you know, kind of as cheesy as it sounds, it just, it, it just fuels my soul. And, and it's the way that I feel most human and most connected to other people. Well, that's sort of, I think, such a beautiful answer. And we'll stop there because it's just, it's end on a, a warm, moving note. So Jess, thank you so much for being my, I think, guest number five. Um, and you're also the first guest that I don't represent. So I, I busted out of the uh, Sasha's roster um, <laughs> gang. Of course, I then uh, called you my friend. So I'm taking baby <laughs> steps. But I really, it's just fantastic talking with you. And good luck with everything. Stay safe and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Sasha. It's been so nice to talk to you today. Thanks for having me on. Okay, you bet. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 